Pawn to e4. Rook to f3. <laughs> Knight to c6. Bishop to b5. Um, you resign now. What? It's still a lot of game to play. No, no, I'm going to win. You resign. <laughs> okay. Trust me. I disagree, but... <laughs> Welcome to Film Us Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny, the self-appointed film expert. Pronouns he, him. My name is Laura. I'm the literature expert in the room right now, and my pronouns are she, her. And today, we're covering a little teensy television show not much cultural impact at all <laughs> we're recording on emmy night that's mind right. you so we don't know if this show is gonna sweep. sweep it's predicted to but hey things might happen there might be upsets mm -hmm. we are covering the 2020 miniseries from netflix the queen's gambit right and it's about time because yes. this came out early 2020 and I can't tell you how many times I've been asked if we are covering this and I'm like yes we, it seems like everyone has seen but, this yeah I I definitely think it took Netflix by storm yeah everyone's obsessed with it I had not read the book so we just kept this episode on the shelf for a while because we had so many ideas for episodes and since it's a little bit of a longer mini, mini series it just kept getting pushed back and it's finally time. It's Emmy night. Let's go. Yeah. The most appropriate time to cover this. Of course, the Emmys could go wildly another direction and then this doesn't win anything. Although it's already won nine Emmys, like the technical Emmys that took place a couple weeks ago. So. Oh, interesting. It's al it already has amassed some awards for its cinematography and production design and costume design, as predicted. Yeah. I mean, this is a lavish production. It's a beautiful production. Piece. yeah. Yeah, it is nothing if not a handsome show. Yeah, and honestly, it's a pretty solid book. It's not yeah. perfect. I have a few bones to pick with it, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, I think... It feels like just a solid summer read to me. It's just like, you know, an A to B story, a protagonist who, who starts out in a low place. You know, her parents are dead in an orphanage that mistreats her and gets her addicted to drugs. That character ends up, spoilers. World chess yeah, champion. World chess champion. Which, and it, by the way, she's supposed to be the first female world champion in the story. However, to date, there has never been a female world champion. Wow. I thought that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. But, yeah, I knew she was supposed to be a uh, fictional female version of Bobby Fischer, the chess player prodigy from the 80s, but I didn't know that she was not a real person until recently. I just assumed it was a biopic or a loose biopic, but come to find out, no, completely fictional character, but it feels real. I think that's the magic of both the novel and the TV show. It definitely feels like a real environment, real person, just like Mad Men, the show and the creators just do everything in their power to immerse you in their time period. You're going to bring up Mad Men and not give me a heads up? <laughs> 
just did it. Boom. <laughs> rook to e rook to e5. <laughs> Checkmate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can go into the book a little bit just to tee off the episode. So the book came out in 1983. It's by Walter Tevis, who unfortunately is not alive anymore. But he was a very prolific writer and a very successful screenwriter. He wrote The Hustler and The Color of Money. And so he died about a year after this was published. And, oh, and I guess he wrote The Man Who Fell to Earth with David Bowie. Have not. David Bowie in it. Yeah. No. Um, interestingly, he was never a chess player. That was something that I Googled as soon as I started reading the book because I wanted to know how technical the book was going to be. Yeah. It's very technical. Yes. But Walter Tevis was not really a chess player. He just thought it was an interesting character development yeah, strategy. For I, sure. Should we get into Journeys? I don't know. Yeah. That's about all I had about the development of the book. But Yeah. And well, in 1992, uh, screenwriter Alan Shiok, whose pen name is Alan Scott, that's what he goes by in the industry, uh, he optioned the rights for the book in 92, okay? So that's four years before Anya Taylor-Joy was born, and two years before we were born. Uh, and then it just went through development hell for a while. Studios wanted to adapt it as a movie, but there's too much content to do so, but then a TV show, but then networks were scared that no one would have interest in a story like this. <laughs> Little did they know uh, what was coming. Uh, yeah. Prior to his death in 2008, Heath Ledger, uh, rest in peace, really? Heath Ledger, he had planned to direct the series opposite Elliot Page as Beth, but that didn't come uh, to fruition Interesting. for whatever reason. And then Scott Frank, prolific television writer and producer, also director. He then, around 2009, was uh, interested in adapting this work, and it took him another 10 years to get this made. He had to prove himself a couple times with a few other shows. One Netflix show, Godless, um, which a lot of characters from that show appear mm. in this show. Mm. That, that was really Scott Frank's big break. Mm. Have you seen that? I haven't watched that. I have, yeah. I watched it when it came out uh, in 2016, and I liked it. I think it's solid. I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't, I'm not over the moon about it, but it certainly is like, you know, a well-oiled machine, a, a good limited series. You can watch it in a weekend. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, he finally got this made, and the linchpin for this was getting Anya Taylor-Joy, who's currently in this huge renaissance, what's it? And the current he's currently the big one of the big it girls, I'd say, in I would say she's like not blowing up, like she already has blown up. Yes. Like Yeah. We We fell in love with her, her yeah. in Thoroughbreds. Which if you haven't seen Thoroughbreds, go see that. Uh, it's immediately. such a good movie. Yeah, it's it's a tight 90 minutes. We love Thoroughbreds. I even liked her in M. Night Shyamalan Split. I actually don't think that movie as a whole is that good except for the final twist but she's good in it she's in the witch too right? yes oh and that how could i forget yes that yeah. she was a youngin in that yeah. the witch is haunting it is devastating go watch that also if you're a fan of horror films or like intense period dramas so yeah we loved her in that and then of course emma which we've talked about in the podcast yeah. um she steals that movie i mean well she is the lead she character the but yeah, um right. yeah she, she is emma. <laughs> yeah she is emma through and through and i don't particularly gravitate towards jane austen 
stories, but that one in particular absolutely blew me away. She blew me away. Should have been nominated for Best Actress. Yeah, I don't, I don't see how that didn't happen. Yeah, that was nuts. That Absolute didn't happen. Snub. Despite that, though, film Twitter seems to obsess over Anya Taylor-Joy uh, for good reason. Um, we agree with that. It was the perfect storm. It came out right during COVID when everyone was indoors and all that's they pro- yeah that's probably why everybody's already seen it but the thing <laughs> yeah. is is that other like other shows came out during that time and yeah. it's like this show blew up and tiger king blew up like those were the shows yes right yes. you yes. need you need your trash reality and you need your intense drama yeah and the queen's game it delivered the sale of chess boards increased 800 percent doesn't surprise me it's this huge cultural phenomenon and i think tonight we're gonna see that pay off it might not win everything but I think Anya Taylor-Joy is going to win Best Actress and the show might win Best Limited Series. I, mm-hmm. at, at least that. At least one of the two. Uh, Anya Taylor-Joy might get upset by another actress, but still, it's this is an incredible piece of art. I don't think the show is perfect either. I think we're, we're both in agreement there. We both love the show, but yeah, we have a few criticisms as well. And I think it's the victim of o- overhype. Yeah, a little bit. All right, well, that's pretty much it. Let's get into the analysis. Okay. I think it's pretty hard to discuss this story as anything but a coming-of-age story. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more to it, but I think it's really about a young girl who was kind of dealt a shitty hand (laughs) Mm -hmm. and how she ends up getting this saving grace sort of of chess, which allows her to cope and escape from the situations that she's she finds herself in because she does not have a lot of control in her life. She's an orphan, she's a young girl, which are also two things that count against her. She's young and female. Mm-hmm. And it's in the 1960s. Actually, we begin in the 1950s. I guess, but chess gives her some kind of at least illusion of control. Mm-hmm. And that also leads her to substance abuse. And it also saves her from substance abuse. And it discusses things like being in a relationship and, you know, learning how to advocate for yourself and. Yeah, just kind of growing up in general, but for someone who was dealt a shittier hand than most people are. You can't have a harder upbringing, really, it seems like, than coming from a family who loves you to having that be ripped from you and then transported to an orphanage during that time, which heavy on the pushing the religious mm-hmm. agenda the regulations on drugs and what you could give to kids were at such a level non-existent yeah right yeah um until it was too late when these kids were already addicted to drugs mm-hmm. and to see her come out of that is extremely satisfying and i think you know walter tevis 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 yeah <laughs> walter tennis uh knew exactly what he was doing there it's not necessarily cliche, but it's a very familiar character arc. Well, I read some criticism online that it was kind of a cliched story arc, and there wasn't enough drama to hold that viewer captivated. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting critic. I personally disagree. You know, if you consider chess a quote-unquote sport, which a lot of people do, it's considered like 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 a hobby sport kind of deal Mm -hmm. i'm not sure if you can get into a tenser situation 
than yeah. a chess game. If you're just playing a game. I mean, you know, chess is also called a game, but it's so much more than that. Chess stands for so much more. I think the beauty in the book and the show is how, sure, it's, it's a little easy to see the one-to-one analysis of, you know, Beth's trying to control her life, so she controls the chessboard, right? Yes. It's really easy to see that. It's a really easy read. But I don't think that that means that it's cliche. I think if you think about it, how often do you read about a child who struggles with substance abuse? Yeah. It's a really dark story. And mm-hmm. I think it's handled really well. And one of my criticisms with the book is that I don't think it handles nuances with the female coming of age story very well. There are a couple things that I just think were not written very well just because it's just, it was a man writing these things. But I think the show did a really good job in digging into some really dark situations. Yeah. I don't know how much tenser you can get. Right. Right? In the middle of a chess game and she's like, you know, with the with the tournament in Paris, Beth shows up and she's hungover, probably still drunk, mm-hmm. stinking, you know, unshowered, unrested, and she's playing one of the most brilliant players in the world. That's an intense moment. She's like sweating. She can't drink enough water. How much more tense could you make that situation? Yeah, and chess is pure intellect, which yeah. makes the defeats that much harder for the players because it's not just like oh you got unlucky it it is like a direct attack to your decision making skills Mm -hmm. to your confidence your forethought your yeah your poise your ability to remember i guess your your memory (laughs) that's the word um yeah it is an assault on all senses which is funny it's just two people sitting down at a table with a board, but it means so much. And I think the show gets away with it more successfully because you have, you can visually see it. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just imagining it. Yeah. Space. Yeah. You're imagining it in the book as you're reading it. But to actually have that visual component to it, I just think it only, only elevates the story. And whereas I, I don't have too much of a take on Walter Tevis's approach to a female character as a man myself but i could say that the story is a very not simple but maybe a simple journey and whereas the show could then add external stressors in her life like of her dealing with her step parents and her stepfather leaving the family and then of the other romantic interests in her life that can't compete with her on an intellectual level and how that bores her then on the flip side of her being so good at something, but then when she finally gets to the home stretch, can't beat the threat. I mean, it, it just, the show adds an extra dimension to the story to really make it pop. Mm-hmm. And it's not so depressing where it like bums you out, but it it's also not so saccharine and carefree where it feels like it's just light entertainment. It, it's a very best of both worlds type of deal. Yeah, and I think you're so right about the stakes in chess being really high. Yeah. This is a personal experience that I had, which turned me off of chess. And basically what happened was the person who taught me how to play was kind of a jerk. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know if he even knows if he's this person, but... Or she. Well, (laughs) but he was 
an intellectual opponent for me before we had played chess. He was really interesting to me and he read a lot. So I felt like we had great conversations. We worked together and I respected the way that he did his job. But when we sat down to play chess, I felt like it was just exactly what Beth experiences. It's everything that you try to do mentally, but the opponent can see it. Mm -hmm. And I got very angry very quickly because he was pretty good at chess and I had never really played. And so to see him beat me in like five moves, I was like, go fuck yourself. Like I'm done with this. This is just like exposing the fact that I consistently feel inferior to you when we have discussions. And now it's like, you're proving it to me yeah. on a board. <laughs> and right. that made me really angry. And so I completely understand how humiliating it is when Beth loses because yeah. in that relationship, like we don't really talk anymore, but Beth is surrounded by people who are telling her you can't do this, you're a woman, you're young, you don't come from money, you don't have any money, you're addicted to alcohol, like all this stuff is against her. And so to actually not be able to prove that she can overcome that because she values chess so highly is really devastating to watch. Yeah. It causes her to work against herself, mm -hmm. right? Like she keeps going back to the tranquilizers and the alcohol because she doesn't trust herself. And it's understandable. I think even though a lot of people don't play chess, it's relatable. Yeah, we all can relate to being good at something and then keeping your schedule and your daily routine exactly the same so you can maintain that skill level of whatever you're doing. And for Beth, it, this is much more a part of the show than it was in the book. Drugs were a part of her visualizing the board and coming up with her moves. And like you said, she didn't have the confidence to stay off that routine. At, at first, she didn't have the confidence uh, to stay off that routine in order to beat her um, opponents. And that's a big part of her arc is just calming down, relaxing, being true to herself, knowing that she can win despite her addictions and past trauma. It's a great story. I really enjoyed it. Who would have thought that watching people play chess silently would be so thrilling? And that's a big reason why I think the show is more enjoyable than the book because a lot of the book is just chess moves mm -hmm. and I, I don't know how to play chess. I, I certainly wish <laughs> I knew how to play chess. I feel like this book would be so much more enjoyable if you knew the moves. I mean, Tevis explains it at certain points, but a lot of times he's just telling you like, Beth does this and her opponent does that. And I was never bored, but there were sections of her tournaments where I did space out. And now, of course, what the show affords you is the visual flair, the lavish sets, sumptuous cinematography, you know, Anna Taylor-Joy with her piercing eyes looking at her opponent, knowing that she's going to beat him. It has that visual element to take you out of just the simple didactic, like, Pondy for this to that. One of the most beautiful scenes is when she's playing in Las Vegas, and they keep flashing between her and her opponent versus the board that's being played on the big mm -hmm. board, I guess. <laughs> the game is being played on the big board so that onlookers can see what's going on. That was such a beautiful sequence. But I also think it's really interesting to talk about chess and the theme of obsession, because you talked about players practicing and having a routine. And obviously like Beth's routine is just to obsessively study. Yeah. And while a lot of people might find that boring or they just couldn't bring themselves to do that with anything, 
it's Beth's only way to gain freedom from the societal restrictions that she is already bridled with. I think some of the in some of that intensity comes from the fact that again, chess gives her freedom. It gives her freedom of expression, it gives her the freedom to travel, she's making money so she's economically free, which means that she can fight back against her adoptive father when he comes back and says, I don't want to sell you the house, I didn't want to adopt you so you're on your own. I think that freedom is what she really craves and the freedom of being defined by other people and put into a box and continuously told that she can't do anything. So I think that kind of like backs her into the into a corner and that's where the abusive behavior is forced out because when she can't be free she focuses on chess but then that becomes overwhelming for her and so to calm herself she drinks. So like that chain reaction I think is yeah a really s smart storytelling. Yeah, and I think that's enough and one of the few criticisms I have against the show, and I know you feel this way, is that they added at the start of every episode a subplot about her birth mother. Right. This is where the show diverts from the book yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I would say the show overall is pretty faithful. Almost, yeah, beat for beat. It's very yeah, faithful. Yeah, but this is an example of a totally new addition. So in the book, her parents are just dead um, at, at the start, but in the show... They make her mom a woman who's currently dealing with some mental issues who was a Harvard, I think it was a Harvard... Mathematician. Yeah, mathematician grad who, who's go going crazy. And in the show, Beth originally came from money, but then her mom decided to move into the par poor part of town with the trailer. Because she's, yeah, right, struggling a little mentally, and then the father leaves. Yes. Tries to get Beth back, isn't successful... And then the key change as well is that the reason Beth ends up in the orphanage is because her mom tries to commit suicide with her in the car. Yes. And kill both of them, which is very dark. Oh, I, I interpreted it as she was just killing her, sacrificing herself. To no, so there's a line right after they go visit Beth's dad, and she says you know, like, what What were we there for? Beth says, what were we there for? What, like, who was that? And her mom's response is, well, I just figured out what to do with you. So basically, I think her mom wanted to drop her off with her dad. Right. But since that didn't work out, she was like, well, I'm gonna kill us both. Gotcha. Okay. I guess I, I missed that line. I just interpreted it as like, look, uh, the only place for you now is an orphanage. So Right. But I think that she could have just left Beth at the orphanage. I guess you're like, right. So there, it was key that she tried to kill people. Yes, but yeah, as... Really dark. Yeah, but it is kind of like a... That is an example of an archetypal character, like the crazy mom who... I mean, we've seen that in a bunch of shows recently. I mean, it, Russian Doll, we love that show, oh, but, yeah. but a big part of that is the character contemplating if she's going crazy like her mom. The Haunting of Hill House had a mom who... And yeah. Smith. Yes, yeah. It's, and Handmaid. It's just yeah. like a, it seems it like a constant theme for uh, period pieces. It is a little bit of a trope. And I think that it comes out of exactly what Beth struggles to overcome as well. Because as women, we have been defined by 
you know, what society will let us do rather than what we want to do. And I think the reason that Beth's mom is struggling mentally is because she wants more out of her life rather than to be a mother. And because she couldn't get that out of her life, she started getting depressed and that led to more and more reactionary behavior. But I, I don't know if that's what happens a lot of times. I think that's kind of a, a jump between like, you know, being so depressed that you go quote unquote crazy. Yeah. I think that's not fair to put on women's shoulders a lot of times. Like mm -hmm. I, I see where it comes from. I see where the trope comes from. And like, you know, Beth sees that and wants more freedom and she gets it. And so she does turn out better than her mother. But yeah, I, I don't think that that's a totally believable storyline. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's not only is it not believable, but it's not um, necessary. The mm -hmm. show is so rich in yeah. character development, most importantly for Beth, that it's just completely extraneous. I would cut it out completely, mm -hmm. like not even show her mom at all. Cause yeah, she, she's in the orphanage from page one. Yeah. Her, her mom had died in a car accident. That's it. That's really the only background we get about our family at all. Yeah, and I think that's what I really appreciate about the book. Certain long books we love, like we love 112263, <laughs> love Dune, but The Queen's Gambit, I think it was nine hours on audiobook, just like perfect. I knocked it out in a few days. Mm -hmm. Like it was just a really simple, clean ride. My biggest complaint about the series, unfortunately, is the first half of episode one because we get the flashback of, of Beth stumbling into the Paris tournament. And that's a very quick clip. That's like maybe a minute. But then we flash back to Beth's childhood in the orphanage, which then goes on like way too long because then you're not sure which one is a flashback. You know, are we currently experiencing her childhood? Are we... Right. I think that was a little discombobulating and it didn't quite set up that we were going to track her from the orphanage to older age. Mm -hmm. I didn't think that 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 pacing was quite. Yeah, right. we, we talked about this as we were watching it, but I disagreed with you about the, the opening in Paris. Like I thought that was a good flash forward to start with and then to go with a flash back. But then, yeah, her time in the orphanage extends to um, episode two. I think the orphanage, th that should have been solely episode one. And yeah. then, then episode two on should have been her transitioning that actress into Anya Taylor-Joy and then her competing in Kentucky uh, much earlier, but that, that happens like later in episode two. So I think from a pacing standpoint, yeah. And, and I think we're used to that as viewers, as like time periods being constrained to singular episodes. So to see that extend into episode two, per, or perhaps they could have just conjoined episode one and then the first half of episode two to create one long episode. And then that would have been, I think, more yeah. appropriate. I, I, I don't know. I don't I mean, mind flashbacks. Yeah. It's just that it went on for so long that you weren't sure. Uh -huh. You kind of forgot about the Paris tournament. And right. It was, like, it was such a plop in the middle of yeah. Immediate Rest and, that yeah, and they also hard to be excited about it. <laughs> right. And they also teased like, ooh, there's someone in Beth's bed. Who's it going to be? And yeah, then in episode really six, it's like, oh, it's Cleo. And then they kind of leave it open. It's like, wait, did they sleep together? What not? I, we, we can talk about Cleo later because that's an addition to the yes. 
show that was not uh, in the book. Yeah, but so yeah, that, that's a big difference. I, I We feel that the mom subplot doesn't really add anything that's not already there, so that could have been cut out. They didn't even have to add it to pad out time. I mean, this is seven episodes. They're all an hour long. Right, and you know who I feel like could have gotten a little more screen time is Jolene. Like, yeah. their relationship wasn't as tight as it was in the novel. I have, I take a little bit of issue with Jolene's character in the novel and the show. It's been criticized for being a little bit of the black savior. And helps out the white helps, person right, and, and like gets nothing only, in return. Yeah. yeah, is only there to prop up the white character. I yeah, found an interesting article in Variety, you know I love Variety, where the woman who plays Jolene, whose name is Moses Ingram, Who's up for uh, an Emmy tonight, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Good luck to her, because I think she's really good. So this article in Variety is called When Friendship Goes Too Far. Performers weigh in on upholding their own narratives so characters are not just sounding boards. Which basically just diminishes their roles in the shows. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to read this part, because I thought it was really insightful. She says... I fanned the flame of everything she was so that in the small moments that we do get with Jolene, we can hopefully see that she's a full person in her own life. If Jolene was also white, I think people would just be able to accept the gift of the thing better, which is why I think it's so precious for us to pay attention to all the dynamics of storytelling. When I step into a role, whether the character is written black or not, by virtue of me being a black woman, every other element of storytelling around it is informed by my blackness, which I think is a beautiful thing. So I think she did a really great job of fleshing this character out because we do get a sense that she's been really successful and she's really smart. Yeah. You know, like she's not taking shit from anybody and she's being successful without Beth. But I still see the argument where she's really just there to give Beth $3,000 so she can go to the chess tournament, which also doesn't happen in the book. Right. Yeah, she does help her out of her lull, Beth's lull and her low point um, Mm -hmm. after Paris. But there's nothing really reciprocated. And maybe at the end, Beth should have given Jolene some money. But I mean, I'm guessing she's going to do that. But you need to get some confirmation that or maybe have beth give a speech at the end of the tournament and say i wouldn't be here without jolene my friend because jolene does intervene when beth is really at the bottom of her substance abuse hole but we don't get that final thank you yeah her last line is something like that cracker did it and you're like yeah and you're like oh that's, re- that's really it? Like- so, you know, the other thing that I really like that they cut out of the show is that Jolene sexually abuses Beth in the orphanage. Yeah, when they were... She forces... Yeah, she forces a sexual interaction, which I thought was way out of line. I don't know where that came from. I was uncomfortable reading it because I'm always uncomfortable reading sexual scenes, especially that are female-centered when men write them because it always comes off as like a weird fantasy thing. Uh-huh. And the book does say that obviously like Beth isn't comfortable with it. But by the end of the book, it's like never mentioned again. It's kind of just there to make Jolene seem like she's trying to assert some control over Beth, which could be true because yeah. they're, they're both in an orphanage. But like, why didn't Beth ever like bring that up again or say I was uncomfortable or like that was just a very unnecessary thing. In the yeah, book. He, it was uncomfortable. What the show does is so basically that comes out of Jolene's 
insecurity of how Beth is at a higher intelligence level and she is most likely going to get adopted over her, so she's jealous of her. And in the show, what Jolene does is steal her book. Which she also does in the book. Oh, I actually but, forgot that happened. But, but, but um, it, it yeah. just, it, again, that action renders the sexual abuse unnecessary. Right. It's a, yeah, it's a little, a little much. I also didn't quite get the point of it in the book, especially years later, because in the book, Beth goes as far as to admit her love for Jolene. And it's a bit up in the air as if it's a like sexual romantic love or more just like a friendship love. And, and I actually think that that's well handled because you don't really know Beth's sexuality is left up in the air, which is, you know, I, I think progressive in a way and an interesting choice. But I don't get that choice either. It seems like Walter Tevis was inviting controversy for no real reason. Um, yeah, I truly, I don't have an explanation for it. In fact... One of the things that I really like about Beth's character is that they do talk about her being interested in boys. Like, she has a crush on Towns, and she sleeps with Benny. Her focus... And Beltic. And Beltic, yeah. Yeah. You're right. I forgot about that. She's so uncomfortable, as any teenager is, with sexuality and expressing feelings for someone else that she just substitutes chess. Like, there's a lot of sexual language around the chessboard. Like, should we settle this now or on the chessboard? She's very aware of the sexual innuendo that can be assigned or ascribed to the chess games that they're playing because there is tension in the air. And you can substitute that in in a very safe way Instead of saying, let's have sex, she says, let's have a chess game. Like, that's really smart, but I like that that's suppressed because it demonstrates the developmental stage that she's in as a teenager, as an adolescent. So that sexual abuse never comes back into the storyline. Yeah. And, you know, as something that holds her back. That shouldn't be what's holding her back. It's just her naivete about how to express herself in a sexual way. I just... Yeah. And that segues nicely into the next change between the book and the movie. Uh, speaking of sexual partners, the character of Cleo. Cleo. <laughs> the French pixie pixie yeah. girl. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, completely new character right. to the story, not in the book. I actually didn't catch this when I initially watched it, but there are some takes online that say Cleo might have been a Soviet spy. Yeah. Now, yeah, I completely didn't pick this up, uh, you know, fully. I I read this online, so I'm presenting this theory right now. She essentially seduces Beth the night before her big game against Borgov in Paris. If not sexually, she seduces her into substance abuse. Right. And yeah, it's left up to your interpretation as to whether or not they slept together although the sexual tension between them at the bar that night was i mean palpable at least i picked up on it i don't know about you mm-hmm. yeah I, I it could be right either way right so yeah I, I which is the that, brilliance yeah. of it yeah like a lesser filmmaker like scott frank is such a great director he directed all seven episodes and he was able to walk that line of like are they friends or are they lovers or is cleo not what she says she is or or some or is there something more so yeah then yeah so evidence to support that she was a Soviet spy was that Beth revealed her feelings for Towns to Cleo and 
ostensibly she didn't reveal that to anyone else uh, during the show. I mean, you never really see her talk about her fe- her love like that. And then she even says, like, I hope one day Towns will show up in Moscow with a camera. And that, like, like a deus ex machina, that's exactly what Towns mm-hmm. does at the last second to show up and to ch- cheer her up. But it makes sense that the Soviets could have used that information to distract Beth during that time. They're like, okay, she loves Towns. We're going to get him to Moscow. You know, Beth is a beautiful girl. Towns is good looking. They're going to hook up. And just like with Cleo, she's going to be all discombobulated and hung over the morning of her game with Borga. So that like totally makes sense. And it actually makes that cliche better. Uh, like, cause when Towns showed up in Moscow, I was, I was kind of like, oh, this seems yeah, a little contrived. unrealistic and contrived. Although uh, to be honest, it did make the caveman part of my brain, you know, light up and get all warm and fuzzy. Like, yay, her friend, her love interest sure, is here. Yeah. But but it is intri- it is more intriguing. It, it is, yeah. The scent, the scent there, way. and it's it's all the more funny and ironic that the Soviets didn't realize that Towns was gay. Yeah. So this is something I wanted to bring up too. Yeah. So we were talking about sexuality, undefined sexuality. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah, this segues nicely again to our next change with the character of Towns, okay. who has a much more expanded role in the show. He is a really fun character. Yeah. Shout out to the actor who plays him. His name is Jacob Fortune Lloyd. He was wonderful. Yeah, really and good. listen, I would not have started to feel suspicious that he was gay until they meet in Russia. I noticed that he was wearing his hair. Not that this is like, I don't know. I'm I'm not saying I have like an incredible gaydar. But because <laughs> I have studied coding, social coding, during different periods in American history, I noticed his haircut. And the haircuts, the, the haircut that he sports in Moscow is not high and tight. There's a little bit of a curl that's coming over his forehead. And longer hair in the 50s and 60s, sometimes coded for I'm open to gay sexual experiences. Yeah. And there was just something about their interaction on the sofa and the way that their language sparring that made me wonder, like he even says like, oh, you like broke my heart a little bit or something like yeah, that. Yeah, because I just wanted to be friends. Right, but yeah. the, and there's never, there doesn't seem to be sexual tension between them. They seem to have a very... At that, at at that, that meeting. At that moment. Yes. And we're supposed to sort of pick up that they've been having the, like a little bit of talk before we've found them on the sofa. So I think that it's just a friendship at that point. There seems to be something that's shifted a little bit and she yeah. doesn't seem as longing or pining for him they're just kind of sitting on the sofa holding hands and i was like that's i did not read that into the book and then i started googling around to see if that had informed the character in the show and in fact a lot of people are wondering if he was telegraphing his sexuality yeah and i thought that that was really interesting it was really subtle like the only thing that hinted that he could possibly be a gay character was the way that his hair was and and the dissipated sexual tension right. that I felt when they were sitting together. And there was a hint earlier in episode three, I believe it was, when Beth goes up to 
Towns' hotel room and they kind of are having this intense sexual tension and their heads get close and then a man comes into the room yeah, and I it's even and pick it up at that point, right? And and I, because it's not presented as like this is my friend. It's like a guy who comes to the room, who's like came from a workout, and that's a trope within itself. Like gay characters in shows or TV, there's always one of them who's like has tight clothing, who's coming from a workout. And his shirt is open. Yeah, she, right. yeah, it's 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 a trope, but I they have that little hint there it's like oh towns is sharing his room with another man and he doesn't explain yeah he doesn't explain really what's going on and the guy who comes in is shocked to see a woman in there and yeah and then he's like okay but then they they almost share a kiss towns and beth so you think yeah i think the strength in the reason I'm interested in it because I don't I don't think the sexuality matters at all mm-hmm. except when you think that he could have been interested in her as a beard maybe but then as they grew a little bit closer and they he found out who she really was that Beth possibly shared her feelings for him off screen and he had enough confidence that Beth was going to accept his sexuality that maybe he said I'm sorry I'm interested in men and she yeah. said, okay. Right? Yeah. Like, she didn't judge him. I think, like, there's a beauty in the idea that that conversation happened off screen. And the result of it is what we see between them while they're sitting as friends on the sofa. Yeah. That's why I think it's interesting to discuss in the context of the story. Yeah. And it's indicative of the show as a whole where there's a lot of stuff that happens off camera that you're just seeing the the end result the conclusion to yeah, like even games smart. itself like you don't see full games a lot of times you see the the ending of them then we can transition to beth's character and her change from the book to the show so obviously beth is being played by anya taylor joy who is an actress, Perfect. but also a, a model. Like, she started out as a model, was discovered on the street by a creepy casting agent who's just like, you should, uh, yeah, you should come along here and, like, you know, be in certain things and model more. She, she took that as a sign to start auditioning and got the witch almost immediately at a young age. She, so she is a, a supermodel. So she has supermodel looks. She's in a Tiffany advert yes. right now. Supermodel yeah. looks... The type of person who is just gets these looks from every man she comes across. Now, in the book, it's ex- explicitly stated that Beth starts out as plain. Mm-hmm. That's a big point mm-hmm. of it. That That's a big point of her character about how she uses her talent to maybe to overcome her situation because she, you know, she couldn't get by with, with her looks. And then it's all in the book, it's also stated that she... As she matures, she gets more attractive, but she's never stated to be like this stunning, uh, yeah, pixie girl, like Cleo, like very much Beth has that also the pixie, the 60s haircut as well. The twiggy. Right. So I know some people had, who read the book, had a problem with that. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a big deal, but it, it is a change in her character for her, for Beth to be attractive and for her to sleep with Benny and Harry. And it, it's just like a, a big deal is made about her sexual uh, journey, I guess. I have a check for that argument because I agree. 
However, I watched a video with Anya Taylor-Joy talking about the development of her character in Beth. And she said the first time that she read the script, she immediately visualized Beth as having red hair. And she like wasn't quite sure why, but then she talked to the director. Did you say Scott Frank? Yeah. And he said, I also visualized her having red hair. And they started discussing it more and they were really intrigued by the idea that all Beth wanted to do was fit in. But this red hair and this sort of expressive face was something that she could not hide. Mm -hmm. And so no matter where she went, she couldn't avoid being judged as like a, a female, a mm -hmm. young girl. Yeah. So I, I get both sides. I just think it's really interesting that they decided to go with the wig that they did intentionally. Yeah, no, I, I can see that of people not taking certain athletes or act actors seriously because of their looks. I mean, that that's the whole thing happening with Megan Fox right now. She has made statements about how it was hard for her to get auditions because yeah. of her. I, I know. It's hard to like, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's hard to feel bad for people like that. Like, I'm right. so good looking, I don't have opportunities. Right. I think maybe let me shift my argument of saying she was in a movie called Jennifer's Body. Mm which was marketed off the sex appeal of Megan Fox and of it being kind of like a, a teen movie about mm. a girl possessed by the devil, but when really it is something much more complex, something much more mature, and now it's gained a cult status. Because of that, more people are discovering it, but it very much at the time was just marketed off, like, look at Megan Fox's body. Yeah. Like, isn't, she, isn't remember, she so hot? I remember when those ads were coming out because yeah. her... The peak of her fame was when we were in like middle slash early high school. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Maybe. But, don't feel bad for Megan Fox. She's a millionaire. But anyway, still. I, no, but it's, it's, it was an interesting choice. That's yes. Bottom line. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think Anya Taylor-Joy can get away with it just because she is a fantastic actress. There's no doubt she's going to win an Oscar one day, if yeah. not multiple. She's probably going to win an Emmy tonight, if not later on in her career. Love Anya Taylor-Joy. Any other major differences or similarities between the book and the movie you wanted? Nope, nothing crazy. I just wanted to point out how much I love Mr. Scheibel. The man yes. who played him in the show was brilliant. Yeah, that actor, his name is Bill Camp. He had a great appearance in season three of The Leftovers. I, okay. He was not nominated for The Leftovers, nor was he nominated for... That's a loss that he wasn't nominated. It was a huge snub. Yeah, Bill Camp, Australian. Uh, is that so? Yeah. I didn't know that. There were so many, I don't know, members yes. of the Crown Royal. <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah, most most of this cast who are playing Americans are English. Yeah. So yeah, Anya, Anya Taylor-Joy is actually, she grew up in England and then moved to Argentina mm -hmm. when she was, uh, like just before her modeling career started mm -hmm. when she was a teen. So she has an English slash Argentinian accent, speaks Spanish, but... Yeah, she she so she, her accent is this like but she interesting hybrid. Molds into yes, American English. Um, the actress who plays her mom, Chloe Perry. I hope I'm saying her name. A Alice Harmon. She fun fact. So she's English, but she played uh, Anya Taylor Joy's sister in Emma. Wait. Yeah. What? Yeah. I didn't even. Are you serious? Yeah, that uh, I was waiting for that fun fact. Yeah, so. Oh, 
I did not even recognize That's the her. connection there. God damn. Uh, yeah, so Bill Camp, he is uh, Australian. Oh, the guy who plays uh, Borgov. Uh, I was going to bring him up too. Yeah, he has about three lines in the show, but he he is such a presence. Yeah. He, just his stare. His stare down is unforgettable. Yeah. His name is Marcin Dorosinski, and he's Polish, not Russian, mm. believe it or not. Yeah, the guy who plays Benny Watts, Thomas Brody Sangster, he's up for an Emmy tonight. I'll be honest, this might be a hot take, but I really did not appreciate his depiction of Benny Watts. I huh. thought he was anachronistic, totally did not... Well, I yeah, his his, his look me. has changed. Yeah, is that's not in the book. He wasn't described as like a cowboy book. Yeah, another character was. As, yeah, that's true. Yeah, right. I I just I didn't I didn't believe. Yeah, it. so I Thomas was... Brody Sangster, he's English. Um, the guy who plays Harry Beltic, his Harry name is Melling. Harry Melling, who you might know as Dudley Moore from the Harry yeah. Potter films. Oh, and, he's so cute. Yeah, I love him in this. He's so sweet. He's so concerned for Beth. Right. I love him. And then finally, the one American uh, is Marielle Heller, who plays Alma Wheatley. Oh, we haven't even touched on oh, Alma. Yeah, that, that's oh, yeah. That's a relationship that's different. So in the movie, Beth and Alma are not really close. They, they don't really get as close as they are in the show. I, I Do you thought, disagree? I thought, they, I thought it was about the same. I oh, thought, I, thought I thought it was it much was... more of a friendly yeah, mother-daughter. I, I thought it... I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Beth kind of seemed indifferent to Alma in the book. It kind of seemed yeah, like. But I think she really came around to her. And yeah. The, oh, she, she did ca- talk about being more friendly. Yeah, I guess. Motherly. Yeah, figure, I did, did. I think they just really focused it on the show and added mm-hmm. to her character. Yeah. So Marielle Heller, you might know her from the show, but she is more well known as a director. She directed uh, "Can You Ever Forgive Me" in 2018 with. Melissa McCarthy, Mm -hmm. and then uh, the next year, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the movie about Mr. Rogers starring Tom Hanks. Wonderfully talented actor. Just just fell in love with her. Felt so awful for her. Another trapped woman. But, and you know what? She abuses alcohol, but I never felt like that was a contrived character. Right. I felt like the mom was a contrived character. Her biological mom was a contrived character. Yes, agreed. But Alma is so so complex we see that she loves music but her husband didn't let her play piano but she was nervous about playing but uh, just just this like wonderfully fleshed out yeah she plays to show her sadness yeah yeah beautiful character and she clearly wanted uh a blood biological connection Mm -hmm. and just the fact that she wasn't able to provide that is something that really deeply upsets her and they say all that without saying anything like that's the beauty of showing not telling so Mm -hmm. a a beautiful performance by marielle heller she wasn't nominated but um she should have been yeah she's in that and yeah most of most of the people in the show English people playing Americans. Mm -hmm. So I had a couple of closing thoughts. Yeah. One of them, I'm going to hit the book really hard because the writing was not very polished. I would would liken it to Ernest Hemingway, like very like meat and potatoes, straightforward. Yeah. So this is my biggest issue. Okay. Actually, I have one little tiny thing. I may have found an inconsistency. Okay. Which bugged me. Page 44, if you have the same version as me. Anyway. (laughs) <laughs> Beth is shown to her room by Mrs. Alma Wheatley. Uh-huh. And she says, I've never had a room of my own before. However, 
Beth is an only child, and she did grow up in a house. Right. So I don't understand how it could be her first room. Unless she's talking about growing up in maybe a trailer park, and she's talking about like a shared space with But her in mother. the book, but she didn't, though. See? Yeah. That's an inconsistency. In yeah, okay. The book, gotcha. In the book, she says, this is the first room I've ever had to myself. And I'm like, that is not possible. It, it should have been changed to, this is the first room I remember like having. Something like that. Yeah. Something like she could lock the door. That was a really yeah. big deal because she really valued privacy, which she didn't have at the orphanage. That really bugs me. Yeah, I, think, I guess. Hey, read the book, and if I'm wrong... Point it out because it, it's been niggling at me. <laughs> the other thing that I find absolutely unforgivable, I'm sorry, but I started noticing how lazy the descriptions are in the book, and I figured out why. And this might get a little repetitive. I'm going to read you a list of every single time he uses an adjective and then finishes it with dash looking to describe something. So here, here we go. Pale looking, wet looking, piratical looking, heavy looking, soft looking, bulky looking, dangerous looking, weird looking, messy looking, pregnant looking, strange looking, doleful looking, arrogant looking, and weary looking. Jeez, Laura, I, I know I haven't looked my best recently, but you didn't have to go on that time. <laughs> <laughs> Smelly yeah. looking. Yeah. <laughs> Ugly looking. That is really lazy writing. That is, that is, huh. you are breaking every single rule of description in literature. That is so lazy. Yeah. Like, come on. And, and this is a, this is a 150 to 200 page book. And that's like 14 examples uh-huh. of a time where he was just like, I don't really feel like describing what's going on. So I'm just going to say wet looking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess I didn't pick up on it as I was reading it. Oh but yeah. my god, every time I read it, I wanted to rip the page out. I guess, <laughs> I mean, yeah, the book is not challenging on an intellectual level, but at the same time, as I've said before, like, it did fly by. I mean, it's, yeah, it's entertaining, but I... I I totally get that criticism. Oh, I don't. True. I don't have anything to add to that. I've been, um, it's been building since I finished the book. For the oh second no, time. I did. I did write something down. I think it was fun. I wrote this down because I knew you'd laugh at it. I think there was one point where he said the word elongated and long hallway to describe a hallway. Oh, it's like she walked out the elongated so... path in the long hallway, and you're like, wait a second. Like, so repetitive. See, there were a, there were a bunch of moments like that, but this was the one thing that when, I just when oh. Laura writes it down, you know it's either really good or really bad. And I will <laughs> I will give you page numbers for every single example if you want to hear them, but they're all in there. I promise they're all in there. Yeah, I think yeah the listeners uh, yeah trust us. She has the numbers on there. I so have the numbers. <laughs> um, re-rack it. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, just the last thing, is that there's a preface which I always find really interesting in books. Uh And the preface is the poem, The Long-Legged Fly, written by W.B. Yeats, 1937. And I wanted to know how it was prefacing the content of the book. And so I looked it up, and it's about the role that silence plays in fostering great minds. And I thought that was really interesting. I think that this really reveals that the book is about silencing the distractions, and I wrote down like physical, metaphorical, that keep people away from becoming their best selves. 
So, you know, there are healthy and unhealthy ways of realizing that silence. But again, life is about keeping the balance of both. I just thought that was really interesting. And, and flies are mentioned another time in the book. Let's see, I wrote the pages down. Pages 2887, where she talks about like, chess pieces can act as distractions from the true crux of the game. I don't know. I just was writing some thoughts on that. Cause I, yeah. I think that's really interesting. Like you need silence to think and create great ideas and right, Beth yeah. had to create that silence. And sometimes it was drugs. Sometimes it was locking yourself in a room for, <laughs> right. you know, two months. <laughs> the loudest ideas can come from the quietest moments. Yeah. Nicely said. That's nice. a Danny G original. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, I really have nothing more to add. I think you definitely took down that material, but also elevated certain other parts of it. And you're so smart. You remind me of Beth in many ways in your stubbornness, yeah. but also your beauty. Oh, um, I was say, all right. My, um, yeah, my resting bitch face. Mm -hmm. um, I we didn't even get to talk about the set design. It was flawless. Oh yeah, the uh, yeah. Let's shout out production designer Scott Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Uli Hanish, who uh, won an Emmy uh, last week for that production design, and also the cinematography, beautiful c cinematography, Stephen uh, Meisler, who also won an Emmy for limited series cinematography. So Nice. Um, I came across this in Variety. If you're in the Lexington, Kentucky area, which is where Beth goes to live with the Wheatleys, the city's 21C Museum Hotel is now offering a 234-a-night Harmon Room the suite features an Iron Bridge workshop chess set, furniture from antiques shops, wallpaper called The Night's Gambit by Farrick Mason, and copies of Chess Review Magazine from Black Swan Books. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. So if you're in the Lexington, Kentucky area, I'm not sure when they, you know, end that special room, mm -hmm. but that would be really cool to yeah. stay in. I also just wanted to mention that Beth looks like a white queen in her closing outfit. Mm -hmm. In that yeah. closing shot. Beautiful. Signifying she's the queen and the rest of the world are her pawns. Beautiful. What's her next move going to be? Yeah, well, think, oh. I have uh, a theory about that. I think she stays in Russia and never leaves. Interesting, yeah. That's my theory. Um, final rating for the book and show. The book, I would say, honestly, just substitute the show in for the book because it's just better. I would say two out of four stars because I just, uh -huh. it's not super well written, but it's a wonderful concept. Show. Three and a half out of four. I just have to knock it a couple things for a couple things, but I like the book a little bit more. It's like fun, simple, nothing too challenging, quick, you know, satisfying character arc. Three out of four stars. The show, yeah, it's almost there at the four. I mean, from a technical standpoint, it should be lauded, which it is <laughs> currently. Really? But yeah, certain other aspects I think could have been cleaned up. So three and a half out of four. We're in agreement there. Thanks for listening. Yeah, this was fun. Film is finally, lit. we got to have yes, our queens game. Finally, I know. That's our fun. downloads are going to skyrocket, I just sure. predict. <laughs> All right. That's what we do this for. Yep. Ratings and downloads. Yep, <laughs> we don't care about the material, just the downloads. Thanks for listening to Film is Lit. Please rate and review. Subscribe if you haven't already. Follow us on at film is underscore lit underscore podcast <laughs> <laughs> on and then yeah we'll see you on the next one bishop to b4 <laughs> <laughs>